Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Steve Letwin. He's the chairman of Cassia Gold, a Canadian exploration company uh, focused on the exploration of two of its gold projects in British Columbia, uh, the Cassia Gold and the Sheep Creek Gold Project. Um, Steve brings over 30 years of experience from the resources sector, uh, where he specializes in corporate finance, operational management and merger and acquisitions. Um, and in his career, which um, includes 10 years being the president and CEO of IM Gold, um, which most of our uh, listeners will be uh, familiar with. Um, so he's here today to tell us a little bit more about, obviously, his career. Um, obviously, I've got some questions to ask him around that um, and more about Cassia Gold. So that's welcome, Steve, to the podcast. How are you doing, Steve? Rob, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No, and I appreciate your time. And we're actually recording this on Easter Monday. So I yeah. um, appreciate you uh, taking your time away from your family on this. Um, so uh, all is good. So I wondered if you can give us um, a little bit about, about your background. Um, if you just want to give us a brief brief overview, because obviously I've got some questions I want to ask you um, sure. around, obviously, around your time with I Am Gold. Um, so right. yeah, just wanted to give us a quick snapshot of your of your career. Great. Well, I, I started off in finance, as you mentioned, Rob, uh, with Procter and Gamble. Uh, learned the basics of good finance at Procter and Gamble, great company. I went into the oil and gas business uh, in the '80s with Jack Gallagher. Uh, you're too young to know him or remember him, but he was a very famous uh, oil and gas guy here in Western Canada. He was called Smiling Jack. And uh, Smiling Jack got very aggressive with acquisitions um, and put the company called Dome Petroleum in, in a really tough position. I was his assistant. I will tell you that I learned more in six years uh, at Dome Petroleum working with Jack than I probably would have learned in 20 years. I call it my Vietnam time because uh, we were constantly fighting back uh, banks to stay out of bankruptcy. Anyhow, I spent uh, 20 years in the oil and gas sector. The last uh, company I was with before I joined IM Gold was Enbridge. I was chief operating officer in Texas, uh, ran all of their U.S. pipelines, midstream business, ran uh, their Colombian operations, so I had a, a place in Bogota, uh, ran their Spanish operations. So I had a lot of international exposure to, uh, to the oil and gas business and learned a lot about how to deal with governments around the world. I was then recruited. I, I did get a bit of a reputation as a quote-unquote fixer. I, I seemed to be good at fixing things. I got headhunted uh, by uh, IM Gold's board. Uh, they were having some huge challenges up in Toronto in 2010, and I looked to have a change in my career. Uh, I had a very successful career with, with Enbridge and in the oil and gas business, but I thought it was good uh, to make a change. Uh, so I joined uh, Iron Gold in November of 2010 as president and CEO. 
Right. And that's obviously where I want to uh, start the questioning. So you were there for obviously over a decade um, and obviously the, the CEO. Um, and for those that don't know, I am Gold. They're a multi-billion dollar mid-tier gold producer uh, with operations I know in Africa. Um, so I just wondered what, if you can just tell us a little bit about um, what it took for you to become obviously the CEO and obviously you were approached to to become the CEO of the company. What what right. what were your thoughts at that particular time and obviously the challenge ahead? Well, the, the challenges were, uh, I think, tied mostly to the fact, as you said, Rob, they were very diversified geographically. So they had operations in West Africa, Burkina Faso. Uh, they had operations in Suriname down in South America. They had operations in Canada. Uh, but most of their gold production came from Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, and South America at the time. So my background from Enbridge, which was dealing with governments, communities, um, trying to make sure that the political risk was managed properly, uh, was, I think, critical. And I did do that. I, I had a very strong board. Don Charter was our chairman. Uh, nothing but praise for Don. I had a fantastic uh, CEO. OO, Gord Stoddard, CFO, Carol Banducci, a great team, Jeff Snow, et cetera, who uh, helped me tremendously. We had a great team there. And I was there just under 10 years. I made 57 trips to West Africa. I probably made over 70 trips to South America. And uh, the success we had was tied to the fact that our team spent a lot of time on the ground learning the uh, environment we are in and dealing with the volatility that comes with uh, working in those kind of countries. So I would say the biggest challenge was getting to know the government, the community, making sure that the deposit, which we, we knew was very, very commercially attractive, could be mined and we could execute our plan. And what was, I suppose, what were some of the learnings uh, that, you, that you made during your time there Obviously, overcoming a lot of these challenges. Um, obviously, I'm not sure what how the company was when you started in 2010 to what it was when you left. Um, but obviously, I take it that the company um, obviously moved forward and obviously prospered during that time. So, what was what was some of the learnings that you uh, that you made and discovered being the CEO of that of I Am Gold? Number one learning. Listen to the people on the ground, number one. So when I went to West Africa, when I went to South America, when I visited our operations in Canada, I spent a lot of time talking to people that were actually doing the work. So whether it was underground or whether it was in the open pit, I spent a lot of time with the team talking to the people about the issues that were facing us and what we needed to do to solve them. I'm a huge fan, Rob, of empowerment. And uh, that doesn't mean you abdicate. That doesn't mean you give up responsibility. But I was raised on a farm in, in southern Ontario. My dad was very good at, and my mother were very good at empowerment. I learned at a young age how to take on responsibility. And I'm a big believer in the power of people. So we spent a lot of time empowering those people that were on this site to deliver their objectives. And I Am Gold did flourish. I'm Gold went through some of the same challenges that many companies went through between 2010 and 2020, believe me. But 
you know, we had three probably tremendous years, uh, 2015 and 2018, where production levels were, were exceeded, share price performance was outstanding. Um, I was voted CEO of the year, and is that, which is always a bad omen if you're voted CEO of the year, uh, 2016. But uh, I, I, I was very humbled to receive that because it was a team award, in my opinion. I'm just a huge believer in people. And if you give people the opportunity to succeed, they will perform. And we saw that at all the sites. So I would tell you empowerment uh, is number one to success, no matter what business you're in. And getting that in place at the various sites was critical because guess what? I can't be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to depend on the people that are there to make sure that things run properly. And they're not going to know how to do that unless you give them the tools to do that. Yeah. Um, what were some of the highlights um, and probably achievements that you, um, that you accomplished whilst being the, the CEO? I would say in, uh, at Essican in Burkina Faso, it was uh, putting in a water system, uh, not only to help our mine, but help surrounding communities. It was building a 15 megawatt hybrid solar farm right on site, which provided uh, alternate uh, fuel energy for the uh, mine and for the nearby communities. Um, the medical assistance we gave in Suriname the solar panels we put in, in uh, Suriname for the Aboriginal people that live there, for the children to, uh, to grow and prosper and be able to find jobs. And the fact that we were very community focused about making sure that we hired as many locals as we could uh, at the mine site to help them uh, develop. I mean, keep in mind, most of these gold mines have 10 to 15 year mine lives. And so you start there, you put a, a billion or so dollars into the mine and you create all this prosperity. And then 10 years later, you're gone. And the 2000 people that are working for you, what exactly are they gonna do? And uh, so there's gotta be a line of sight, in my opinion, for people to be able to have a sustainable uh, level of, of living, a standard of living. And I would say the greatest accomplishment we had as a team at IM Gold was making sure that that plan was in place. And our productivity as a result, when people knew that there was something after the mine, uh, improved about 25%. It was amazing. So what have you taken away from being, obviously, the CEO of a uh, mid to sort of large tier mining company um, to now moving into the, the junior sector? I would say it, it, there's probably the same same kind of learning. Um, you're only as good as the people that work for you. And uh, you cannot be a lone wolf here. You have to have a team that you can rely on and that's going to deliver results. I don't care if it's a major, which I worked in for years, a mid-tier, which I obviously spend time on, or a junior. It's all about having the right people in the right slots You've heard it a million times, but a lot of CEOs, whether it's ego, whether it's uh, just the fact that they're stubborn about it and they're micromanagers, they want to do everything themselves. A lot of CEOs don't get that. And uh, I will tell you that it is 
it's a if you don't have that, it's a recipe for failure. If you do have that, it's a recipe for great success. And getting those people, I mean, my job as a CEO is succession, making sure you have people that can replace you if you have to leave, uh, succession down the hierarchy, and making sure that you have got the best capable people in those jobs to deliver those results. If you don't do that, you're not going to succeed. Yeah, no, that's some good good advice. Um, you left Iron Gold in 2010, sorry, 2020. Um, yes. So what, what have you been doing uh, since then? Um, and what sites can you sort of, I suppose, provide us about what it takes to succeed in the mining industry from an investment standpoint? Well, I, I focused, uh, I was, I retired after almost 10 years at Iron Gold. I was turning 65. Um, Fred Mannix, who uh, has been a very good friend of mine, I've been on the board of this private company for 25 years. He's, uh, he's one of the best there is out there. Uh, he retired as chairman, and Elizabeth Cannon is now chairman of our company here at Mancal. Uh, just a phenomenal human being, great leader, used to be president of University of Calgary. So Mancal is in good hands. I spent a lot of time on Cassiar, which I'm chairman of. Um, uh, I, I can't tell you how pleased I am about the progress of Cassiar. And again, uh, the progress at Cassiar is tied to the people that we were able to recruit. Uh, Cassiar went from nothing uh, in terms of market cap, a million dollar market cap, to a hundred million dollar market cap because of the people that are there. Not because of Steve Latwin but because of people like Shirley Anthony, Marco Rock, Tyler Rice. Uh, we have a, we've, not, we've, now, uh, we've now got our new uh, Vice President of Exploration uh, who joined us from B2 Gold. Um, uh, Vern, who, who's just outstanding. And prior to Vern, we had just outstanding contributions from the geological team. Um, Don Nugent, our CFO, who's been with us a long time. I could go on and on, but I will tell you that the progress of Cassiar, which is a, a beautiful deposit uh, in Northeast BC, 64,000 acres of opportunity, uh, virtually no overburden, um, infrastructure surrounding the deposit, which makes it very, very attractive and mineable. Um, the, this has all led to great success. So the last, Two years in particular, since I've left Iron Gold, I've focused on that. And, you know, uh, Rob, I would tell you one thing that I learned as a CEO, whether it's in the oil and gas business or the gold business, if you cannot show shareholders a path to net present value, a path to NPV, you will not maximize your share price. And what this team has been able to do, surely... Marco, Don, Vern, the entire team is being able to illustrate, and we've got great advisor, David Reese, um, James Maxwell, uh, I could go on and on. But what this team's been able to do is say, here's a deposit, Cassiar, Sheep Creek, here's a path that we can take to get to realizing a great NPV. And if a shareholder can see that, they will buy your stock. If they can't see that, if it's fictional, 
if you have if you're way in the center of Africa without any infrastructure or up in the Arctic without a road or in the deep jungles of uh, Brazil without access, people, no matter what the size of the deposit is, if you don't have a path to realize that net present value, you're not going to get the value. And I would tell you that that is absolutely critical in terms of a junior. You can have all the great exploration results in the world. And by the way, Cassier has phenomenal drilling results. Phenomenal. But shareholders, old and new, need to be able to see a path to realizing that value. And uh, that's what this team has been able to do. And I'm so blessed as chairman to have such a strong leader with Marco Rock, our president and CEO. And then the team under Marco is world-class. There's no other word to describe them. They're world-class. One living, just give us a quick snapshot of uh, Cassia Gold for those that uh, may not know much about the company. There are two uh, basic, call it, opportunities with Cassiar. There's our bulk tonnage opportunity, which uh, sits um, on the property. It's about, uh, it right now has just over a million ounces inferred. We're doing uh, a new 43101 update, uh, which should be out, we're hoping, by the end of the month or first week in May which will give uh, shareholders, I believe, uh, with the results of the new drilling, a more confident view of what the resource can look like going forward. And more importantly, uh, that is economically recoverable. And so we have this large bulk tonnage um, deposit, which uh, is open in every direction. It's about 15 kilometers uh, long. There's virtually no overburden. So um, it's about 150 to 200 meters deep. It extends for a long way. And there's an old mill on the property. There's infrastructure on the property. There's a highway that goes through the property. Uh, water's accessible, power's accessible. So can this deposit uh, show a path to MPV? Absolutely. And then we have what's called uh, you know, the uh, more uh, narrow vein, high grade uh, deposit, uh, Table Mountain, which uh, has had thousands, hundreds of thousands of ounces of gold mined in the past that represents what I would call significant upside. So you've got your bulk tonnage, which is your, uh, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, demean it all. It's your grocery money. Uh, you're going to be able to make good profits off that. You're going to mine it, be able to mine it very efficiently, very economically. And then on Table Mountain, you've got this tremendous opportunity to see much higher grade, much greater resource with further drilling. And there's some beautiful targets on the Table Mountain side, uh, on the south side, that I think is going to be able to deliver some phenomenal results. So. Uh, in fact, some of our advisors believe that Table Mountain can deliver significant value to shareholders. I'm, I tend to be a bread and butter guy. I like the fact that Taurus is there. I can see it. There's no overburden. Uh, it's completely accessible. 
We can develop cash flow from that area fairly quickly. And then uh, right beside it as part of the deposit, we have this great phenomenal uh, upside that we can mine uh, over time and drill over time and give our shareholders even added value. So it really is a very unique deposit in that you've got what I call your bread and butter forest bulk tonnage opportunity coupled with the uh, higher grade narrow vein um, opportunity at Table Mountain. When you put the two of them together, it's it delivers such uh, a wonderful picture for shareholders. And again, path and net present value. We're not in some isolated part of the world in Siberia. We're not dealing with political problems in Russia. We're in British Columbia, which is probably the friendliest jurisdiction in Canada for mining. And the community relationships we have with the First Nations is outstanding. We, we just have a great track record around the ESG part of the, of the equation. This is a fantastic opportunity for people to invest. And uh, that's, that's what we have in front of us. Thanks for giving us an overview of uh, Cassia Gold. You're obviously the chairman. What led you to take on uh, that position? Um, I've, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur, I guess, uh, even though I work for major companies. Um, you know, just a quick example. Uh, when I joined uh, TransCanada Pipelines, they put me in charge of their new energy division, which I set up and was very successful. When I was at Enbridge, uh, they put me in charge of Pathfinders, which was uh, a section of the company that was looking to the future. Uh, we had outstanding success in the renewable area. We became the number one renewable uh, corporation in Canada over six years. Um, so I've always had this appetite, uh, this passion uh, for, for creating value adding jobs. I'm a big believer in Canada. I'm a big believer in creating jobs. Um, I love the uh, sense of being able to create something and, uh, and give back. And uh, when we looked at Cassiar uh, and uh, Sheep Creek, we saw opportunities to do that. So uh, we now are employing you know, literally hundreds of people to go through a major drilling program this year. Uh, we had a very successful financing, again, thanks to the team, Marco led that. But we, uh, we have a nice strong cash balance. Uh, we're not looking behind us about where the cash is coming from to deliver a, uh, uh, a very robust drilling program. Vern Stein, our new uh, vice president of exploration, we couldn't find a better guy. I mean, he is outstanding. And uh, he's got his arms around this. Uh, Jill and he are, are working together to, to deliver the, the most comprehensive drilling program that we've seen in our history. And I just think we're going to show shareholders and, and the community that this, is a, this has got huge potential to go forward as an economic mind. That's what we want to show people. So... I, I love that part of the business, and I guess that's why Fred Mannix hired me to run this uh, this place. We have sixty people. Uh, we're in what I call the corporate ventures area. We've we've invested uh, you know a hundred million dollars in this this area. Uh, 
And Elizabeth Cannon, who's a, a pioneer in technology, uh, creating new opportunities. It's a great combination. So I guess I follow the Maddox view that uh, creating jobs is a good thing, creating uh, new opportunities is a good thing. And if you can do it in your country, that's even better. So Cassia represented all of that, along with Sheep Creek. What advice would you sort of give to uh, junior exploration uh, companies looking to uh, succeed in uh, today's markets? Uh, complete transparency and never, never, never run out of cash. And uh, I underline that because, you know, back when we first started Cassiar, the only person funding Cassiar was yours truly. And you'll find that with most uh, entrepreneurs and most ventures is that there will come a time when nobody wants to even see your face. Nobody wants to hear your voice. Nobody wants to return your phone calls. And in the gold business, we've seen that through time where you can't beg, borrow, or steal a dollar to get a drilling program. So I've always been careful about that balance sheet. Make sure you don't lose control of the balance sheet. Fred Mannix has a saying, never lose control of the whip. Never get into a position where you have to give the company away or dilute the company to the point where you have given it away. So never lose control of the whip. And uh, that is something we've been able to achieve at Cassiar. Uh, again, thanks to the team we have, the ability to raise money over the last number of years came with a lot of hard work and leadership and good results. And uh, so if you have an opportunity to raise money to show people that path to NPV, and again, you don't raise money for the sake of raising money, but if you can actually raise money and, and better illustrate the path, the net present value, you're doing your job uh, as a junior exploration CEO or chairman. And that's what's happening at Cassiar and Sheep Creek. And Shirley Anthony, you're not going to find anybody better than Shirley Anthony to illustrate that. You're not going to find anybody better than Marco Rock as a leader to make sure that that is happening. And Vern Stein, again, our leader on the geological side, is, is doing that. So those three people working together are going to deliver some great uh, opportunities to add value for our shareholders. Uh, and what's the secret in sort of maintaining cash flow and obviously raising money? Because obviously you said that's an important, important factor for a junior, a junior explorer, a junior mining company. Um, and I know obviously over the last maybe two or three years, it has been a little bit difficult to raise, raise finance. It seems to be getting easier now. So what, what, what's the secret? Uh, for people that want to continue raising money and continue keep that cash flow keep coming in? I always look out at least two years, Rob. So I'll do a, a pro forma and I'll look at cash is king. You've heard the saying many times. Uh, my background is in finance. I look out two years and I'll say, okay, how much do we need for base corporate GNA to keep our top people? I put that to the side. That's a minimum amount of cash you need. Uh, if we want to execute on a drilling program, what are we going to need to be able to do that and add value? And if the market is there, take it. Take it. 
because you know we've all seen the market close, the window close, and you can't get a hold of any cash. So when the opportunities to raise cash for good application are there, take it. When they're passing the plate of cookies around, take as many cookies as you can because that plate may be empty a month from now, a week from now, two months from now, who knows? You're seeing it in the technology sector. The NASDAQ is down 18%. A year ago, two years ago, you could put out a concept and raise tens of millions of dollars, literally for an idea. Today, these small technology companies that aren't generating revenue are dying. People are getting out of them in droves. You see it on the market even today. If you're not generating revenue or you can't show a path to generating revenue, they're going to dump you when times are tough. We have to make sure at Cassiar, Cheap Creek, we again can show shareholders that there is a path to NPV. And if we can continue to show them that, we may see a period of weakness, but we'll always be able to be able to keep the lights on and generate enough interest to pay the bills. So I always look out two years and never get into a situation where you're running out of cash in two months. And I, and crazy enough, I see that all the time. You know, the burn rate is insane compared to the market. And the technology companies are getting killed now because their burn rate is so high relative to the valuation now, nobody wants to put money in there. So what are they doing? They're laying off all their people. They're getting rid of all their people. We never, at Cassiar, we never want to be in a position where we have to let go of our key people. Never, never, never. And so we need that base cash position to make sure it's there and make sure people feel secure about what they're doing. And they're not having to look over their shoulder about where their paycheck is coming. That's a terrible feeling. So that's the advice I would give. Um, obviously, you've been in the oil and gas industry, uh, obviously, prior to being in the mining industry. Is there, uh, and I suppose they say the oil and gas industry is a little bit, little bit more, whether they're necessarily tech savvy, they always need to be, they're always sort of one step or two steps in advance of the mining industry. Did you take anything from the oil and gas industry and use those concepts in the mining industry? And do you still look at the oil and gas industry and take some of those concepts that they're, that they're maybe implementing and use it in, in the mining industry? There is a huge overlap between the oil and gas business and the mining business. Community relations, Aboriginal relations, First Nations relations, technology the gold business is light years behind the oil and gas business. Light years. Because a lot of money, you know, the, the, the market cap, <clears throat> if you add up the entire market cap of the gold business, it's, it's the equivalent of one company, two companies in the oil and gas business. Exxon Chevron is, represents the entire gold business. So the Excuse me, the amount of money that people have put into R&D and the gold in the mining business is a rounding error compared to the oil and gas business. And, and the oil and gas business has come back to haunt them a little bit because their ability to extract 
at a more efficient economical price actually led to the oil and gas business prices dropping dramatically. So it's a catch-22. The gold business has done a good job. I think gold CEOs have done a good job trying to improve technology. Uh, we saw it at Iron Gold with the, you know, the hybrid solar farm as an example. Battery-driven vehicles underground, another good example. Extraction opportunities, rock sorting technology. So there's a long way to go, but to answer your question, I, you take a good oil and gas CEO and you can put them in any mining company, and I don't care what anybody says, they'll do a good job and vice versa because the issues are identical. Um, you drill to explore, you take samples, you develop a resource, 43101, you look at the economic cycle, you go out and raise money, you either build a mine or you drill enough wells and build enough batteries and pipelines to extract the resource. There's no difference. There is no difference. And dealing with governments, whether you're in oil and gas or the mining business, is exactly the same. What I will tell you has happened in both those sectors is that the time to bring the resource to commercial realization has been extended significantly because of environmental issues, regulation issues, First Nations issues, et cetera. And if you can find a mine or an opportunity like Cassiar, which is very close, relatively speaking, to being able to being realized economically, take it. And what you're hearing from guys like Mark Bristol, Ian Telfer, is go out and try and find a deposit like Cassiar today. Go, go try and find that in a friendly jurisdiction where you can actually show that path to NPV. They are few and far between. And we're running out. We're running out of opportunities, whether it's in the base metals area or the precious metals area or the oil and gas business. We're running out of opportunities. And that's why prices, surprise, surprise, are moving up exponentially. You don't put money back in the ground, you're not going to have opportunities. Both those businesses are shark-fed businesses. If you don't feed them, they die. And you, whether it's a junior, a mid-tier, or a major, all shark-fed, all need food to keep moving, and that comes in the form of reinvestment. And whether you're in oil and gas or in mining, it's the same challenge. How do, and obviously, you've been involved in for uh, being involved in gold for, for a period of time. How do you see the, the gold mining industry over the sort of next decade? Obviously, we've just spoken about it's getting harder and harder to find sort of top quality deposits. So how do you see the gold market uh, over the next 10 years? And also after that, how do you see the mining industry over the next decade? Um, we're talking about, people have been talking about a commodity super cycle. How, how do you see it? I think gold has got a huge future. Uh, one of the major major reasons, whether it's whether it's uh, right or wrong, countries like Russia and China are trying to literally kill the U.S. dollar. And uh, whether it's Russia tying the ruble to gold or China trying to develop their own uh, link to the yuan through oil, um, and again, 
I'm, I lived in the U.S. for 12 years. Uh, it's, it's Canada's best and most friendly neighbor. I'm not dissing the U.S., but for whatever reasons, the U.S. has pissed off a number of big countries, and the dollar is going to come under pressure. So the dollar as a safe haven for investment is going to come under pressure. Um, I think you're going to see more and more emphasis on gold. You see it in China already. You see it in Russia. And uh, because the opportunities are limited, I think you're going to see more and more money from the majors in the mid-tiers getting back into the juniors. It has to happen because for years we haven't been, what have shareholders been telling us? <clears throat> Give us the money back in the form of dividends or share buybacks. That's what you want. That's, if you're not telling me that today, don't talk to me. When I joined Iron Gold, the only thing they wanted to talk about was more ounces. Within five years, they didn't want to hear anything about ounces. They wanted to hear, how much are you going to pay me back? And that happened in oil and gas as well. To this day in Canada, people that are creating cash right now, and they're creating it in a big way, paying down debt, increasing dividends, doing share buybacks. How much is going back in the ground? A rounding error compared to what they need to. You need $600 billion a year to replace oil depletion. Only half of that has been going back in the ground. You need a tremendous amount of uh, gold reinvestment. You know, we produce, what, 107 million ounces a year? We're not, we're not reinvesting anywhere near that to replace that. So I think gold, the commodities are going to see a lot of upside simply because investors have dissed any kind of reinvestment. And that's been very short-sighted. And as a result of that, gold, silver, your base metals are all going to see some pretty frothy years in the next 10 years. And a company like Cassiar, and you asked me the question, why Cassiar? I'm not a sage. I'm not a prophet. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out when you're not putting money back into something like gold. And gold demand continues to at a minimum, stay flat or go up. What's going to happen to the price? You know, my seven-year-old grandson can figure that out. So, uh, yeah, I think I think we've got a great future. Yeah. Look at what look at what lithium has done, Rob. Look at what lithium has done. I sit on the board of Frontier Lithium. I joined that company. It was a thirty million market cap. It's 650 million today, three years later. Now it's a great deposit, but the price of lithium has gone up 400%. So that, that's happening all over the place. And Cassiar is right, in, right there, accessible, lots of infrastructure, great opportunity for growth, great team. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you continue? I continue to buy shares every time I can. So what? So what's the answer for more money to be put into the ground? I take it obviously the gold price to increase, which will help fund more exploration or people put the money into more exploration. But what what else is a catalyst for 
more money because obviously there's been an underinvestment in exploration over over many years. So what what can what can be the resurgence for more money to get put into the ground? Is it just the the the, the price of gold rising significantly, or is it other things as well? I think price of gold is right up there, but also. I, I'm sensing, and, and I mean, you're a well-read guy. You're you're very informed. I don't know what you're sensing, but I'm sensing that people don't want to rely on the U.S. dollar as much anymore. And you look at the leadership in the U.S. I mean, in Canada, we have our own challenges. So people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But you look, you look at the U.S. I don't know what you see, but I see chaos. I see chaos and I see countries like China and Russia saying, you know, we don't want any part of the U.S. They, they put sanctions on us. They try and control our behavior. We don't want to rely on the U.S. dollar anymore. Now, the U.S. dollar is going to stay strong and, you know, it's always going to be there. But is it as appealing as it used to be? No way. And is it going to probably decrease in terms of its appeal? Yes. And I think you're just going to see people, you know, migrating the gold as an alternative. They've done that for 3,500 years, and they're going to continue to do it. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these guys that's calling for $30,000 gold, but it went over 2,000 this morning, and you know, backed off a little bit. It always hits that 2,000, and then psychologically, it draws back. People get very worried because they saw what happened back in 2012 and 13, after it hit 1960 and then dropped to 1100. I don't see gold doing that at all anymore. I used to worry about that. I don't, I think the floor is much higher now. I think with all the political turmoil uh, in, the, in the way the social media now shows you what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and in the US, the, the split, it's like they have a civil war in the US. Uh, I think people are going to stay nervous about the fiat currencies. And you know, I have more and more people saying to me, um, how can I get my hand on physical gold? You know, at, at ManCal here, um, you know, we have a large amount of physical gold. And uh, I put my hand up and say, thank, thank you, Fred Mannix, for having a vision that gold is going to have value. And God bless him. Because we've done well by it. You know, it's gone up 50% since I've been here. So I'll take that all day long. Yeah, so I, I see a very, very, very robust future for the commodities. Yeah, certainly. And with obviously what's going on with China, Russia, et cetera, how do you see them playing the, the, the gold market? Obviously, they, as far as I'm aware, They've been um, obviously buying a lot of gold. The central banks have been buying a lot of gold. But how do you see them playing the gold market moving forward? I suppose more from a mining perspective. You're already seeing it. Look what look what Putin's doing with his gold right now, tying it to the ruble. Whereas the ruble, the ruble took a big hit initially. It's almost back to where it was before the war. He's no fool, you know. And look, we're all worried about the environment. But are we a bunch of putzes here? Like China, China manufactures all of the solar stuff, renewable stuff to sell to North America. 
but hasn't decreased its CO2 emissions. Russia has done nothing but improve its energy output to Europe, who is completely dependent on Russia, as is North America on outside sources. So here we are in this country, and again, I'm not dissing the environmentalists. I understand the concern. But if we're the only ones that are concerned about it, and we're the only ones that are doing something about it, does it really work? If you're not doing it globally, does it actually work? Uh, no. And guess who's getting richer? Not us. You know, and at the same time, they're tying their currency to gold because they don't want it tied to the U.S. dollar. And the more sanctions the U.S. puts on China and Russia, the more they're going to want to get off the U.S. dollar. Like, duh. And the more the value of gold is going to go up. So I, I, I just think we're going to see a very attractive environment for gold and gold reinvestment and every other metal that you can think of. Yeah, I hope so. I'm, uh, I'm uh, stacking gold and silver. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we will see that and I believe that we will. So let's talk about a little bit more about things that we can control, unlike things that we can't control, what governments do. Um, what advice would you give investors to succeed in today's market and obviously potentially investing in, in the mining industry? Um, look, look for a sustainable future. So look for a path again to replace your depletion. Um, like you've got some companies generating 4 million ounces a year. Some of the big guys like Barrick and Newmont are higher. You have companies like I Am Gold, who's gotten itself in trouble because they haven't, you know, I'm not saying it's because I left, but, um, you know, if you can't show the market that you can replace your production, then you're dying. Um, and why would people want to invest in a company that's dying? So um, for junior companies, again, show investors that path to NPV and you are going to be able to produce. You know, if we could, if we could show people in the next few years that we were able where they can replace that production. And again, we just talked about the fact that what well, used to take 10 years is now taking 20 years to do. You know, Cote Gold at Iron Gold. In 2014, when I bought that company, um, they set up a website, firestevelotwin.com, because we, I had investors who thought it was the most terrible decision on the planet. Um, and it was humiliating for me. Uh, we paid $480 million for that deposit. It had 6 million ounces. Well, guess what? Today it has over 20 million ounces of measured and indicated. It's a beautiful mine. Uh, but I will tell you, every ounce of energy I had outside of going to Africa and South America went into Cote, developing uh, you know, an IBA with the First Nations. It took six years. You know, our first environmental submission to the federal government was 7,700 pages long and cost $23 million. So it takes a long time to take something from, you know, being a basic deposit to a mineable 
economic entity that's going to generate cash flow. And in this country, because of environmental regulations and so on, and again, I'm not dissing it, I'm just saying it's reality. And it's important to include the First Nations. Why, why wouldn't you include the First Nations? But that all takes time. And so the runway to get from your initial deposit to your commercial production is double, triple what it used to be for all good reasons, but it's there. So if you're thinking about replacing depletion, you better be out in front of that, either acquiring or doing further exploration, or you're going to start seeing a decline. And the minute that the investment community sees that, they will toss your shares. And I'm gold, unfortunately, in the last couple of years has seen that. You have to be out in front of that. Yeah. So, and the thing is, and the thing is, we don't have the time. And, that, no. and that's, that's probably the big issue. Yeah. You don't have the time. That's why prices are going to go up. Uh, we've left it so long. And, uh, you know, a country like Canada importing oil from Saudi Arabia, like, how do you explain that? Yeah, <laughs> it sounds I, like I, I, and America as well when you've got it on your Yeah, like what, <clears throat> like what, what is wrong with us? Uh, they're producing it. They're getting all the cash. And we're standing on this pedestal around clean, uh, uh, carbon-free society. Okay, fine, but they're not doing it. China's not doing it. Russia's not doing that. We can't force them to do it, but we're going to pay them for our energy requirements. And how long is it going to take us to transition to a green environment? A Many long years. Time. Oh, God. So in the meantime, we write checks, and they can use that to buy weapons. If, if Russia wanted to come to, to the Arctic, to Canada, would, would Canada be any in any position to stop them other than the U.S.? Well, of course not. We don't have any military equipment to do that. And, you know, we're 35, 40 million people. We don't even have a military to defend ourselves. I don't, I just can't explain it. But yeah. that's the way it is. It is. And as a business, are you looking at any joint venture um, arrangements at all? At all or are you looking at any assets? And if so, whereabouts are you looking? We, we have a lot of interest in our deposit um, on a joint venture basis. We have a lot of interest for good reasons, the reasons we talked about. Yeah. I'm not, we're not, you know, we're, our number one is value for our shareholders. So we're really strong cash wise. Um, we're not in any, again, because we've been good managers of the balance sheet, we're not. And you know we're not in a corner here. We we have lots of room to maneuver, and we have a great team. If somebody would like to join venture with us on Sheep Creek or Cassia, we'd welcome that. Uh, we do have a lot of people knocking on the door, and Marco and and Vern are managing that. Um, but again, only if it adds value for shareholders. But uh, um, I, I would say that it, it obviously makes sense that. We've got to spend a lot of money to build a mine. We don't want to dilute our shareholders uh, to do that. And execution is always challenging, as we all know, in building a mine, uh, especially in today's world with costs. So 
you know, it would make more sense with some for somebody that has more heft to build the mine. Been there, done that. So if we have an opportunity to crystallize value for shareholders, then we obviously would ask our shareholders if that's what they want to do. And uh, we're big on that. We talk to our shareholders every day. Marco and Shirley talk to shareholders literally every hour. And uh, we listen to what our shareholders have to say. Yeah. And what's the outlook for Cassia Gold for 2022? And also, I suppose, why would investors look at your, your company and your asset? Well, we, uh, we had a successful raise. Uh, we're trying to close that with this new uh, 43101 being published by the end of the month, which we're very confident we'll do. We have, you know, in, in our sites, we have a 20,000 meter drilling program, uh, maybe more. I don't, I don't want to give a number that isn't reachable. It isn't because we haven't got great people. It's finding people to actually man the rigs. You've got the COVID issue still out there. You've got supply issues still out there. We were very successful last year. You know, we did about 11,000 meters. I'd like to see that doubled. The results were, were very, very strong. Uh, we'd like to continue to demonstrate to our shareholders that the, the value of the deposit, both at Taurus and at Table Mountain, uh, continues to grow. And again, if we can demonstrate that, we should be able to add to the share price. We're very undervalued compared to the market. Most juniors are. As you know, they're trading at a huge discount to true value. Uh, I think that's going to change for the reasons we talked about. So the future of Cassia really is tied to continued drilling success, making sure we can get those rigs working. Camp is all set up. Burn and Jill have done a tremendous job organizing that. We're set to go. Um, keep our fingers crossed, knock on wood, um, that we're going to have a successful program. I believe strongly we're going to. Uh, we're going to be able to execute. And we have a very strong community relations program with Tyler Rice as well. Um, he's always out there making sure that we address any issues before they become problematic. So everything set, Rob. I, I'm very optimistic. I'm excited as heck. Um, I love what this team has been able to do. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really exciting for all of us. Yeah, no, that's good. I've got one last question because you've mentioned MPV, net present value, on a number of occasions. What lessons can you give, um, I suppose, junior miners, whether it's CEOs, COOs, or junior miners? Um, what lessons can you give for them to maybe focus a lot on their net present value? Because um, obviously, that seems to be a key takeaway from this conversation that we've had. Um, what 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 advice can you give them, um, and maybe areas of uh, focus that they should be looking at um, to improve their net present value? Well, I, I would tell you that most junior CEOs can fall in the trap of thinking their honeymoon period is longer than it actually is. So if I sit in front of you, Rob, and I said to you, "Look, um, we need to be able to build a road from." Here to the mine site in order to realize our NPV. The first time I met you or meet you, you would probably give me the benefit of the doubt and say, 
okay, he's going to be able to raise his 30 million, 40 million, whatever the number is, to build that road or that power line, whatever you need to get to commercial production. Don't, don't be fooled as a CEO to think that a year later that Rob is Rob Tyson isn't going to say, okay, you said a year ago you're doing this. Where are you? Where are the measurable deliverables to get there? And if you can't show somebody that you a are measuring it and b are actually executing on it, you'll their eyes will glass over, and then and and they will lose interest. So as a junior CEO, you're only going to get away with the bullshit if you want to call it that for so long that you're going to have to show people deliverables that you've executed on to show that path to MPV. If you can't do that, they will lose interest in you. So uh, promoting to start, okay, beautiful. It's got a good look to it, but you better show them um, a chart uh, that measures that and delivers on that because they're going to ask you. And if you can't answer them, they, they, will, they will get out of your stock. Yeah, no I suppose ev evidence-based results. Yeah, so showing showing exactly what you're doing, maybe yeah. how you achieved it. Um, here's the results, and this is how we're going to move on. I always divide a deposit into two areas: short cycle and long cycle. And long cycle is okay. Here's the mine out here that you're actually generating great cash flow. Short cycle is um, if you need water, if you got a if you got a way of taking water to the camp. If you need a 40-man, 40 40-person 40 campsite to get drilling done, what have you done? Uh, if you need power, have you got your uh, gen sets lined up to do that? The guy, the people that are doing that now, like Bernstein and so on, they're experts at this. They're experts. And they've been doing it all over the world. So they know that's how, what it takes to get a successful drilling program in place. I talk to them every week. Every week we talk Wednesday morning and they go through in detail. On Thursday, we have a full day meeting in Vancouver. In detail, how are we going to get to that deliverable? So short cycle, long cycle. And if you don't deliver on the short cycle, the long cycle is not going to materialize. Yeah, understand. Steve, really appreciate your time um, and giving us obviously your, your wisdom and um, your experience and obviously tell us about Cassia, Cassia Gold. Um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, um, how can they go about doing that and find out more about Cassia Gold? Shirley Anthony is the is our uh, number one person for quarterbacking that. She's our Tom Brady. And uh, if if uh, you could, you know, give Shirley's coordinates, she is absolutely outstanding and making sure that all questions get answered in a, in a prompt manner. So it's best to go through Shirley because the question may need to be uh, delivered to a Vern or a Tyler or a Marco, whoever. I'm happy to answer questions anytime, but Shirley is the, uh, is the coordinator. Yeah, no worries. Uh, we'll put those all in the show notes accompanying this podcast. Um, Steve, really appreciate your time. Perhaps you can uh, come on. Uh, later this year or even next year and give us an update um, if you have obviously significant uh, results or 
uh, anything else that's happening with the company you never know you might be uh might have another asset that you can uh, talk about <laughs> next year well, i'm actually i'm actually in london uh uh at the end of the month so if if you're around and i can buy your beer i'd love to do it oh, i certainly will take you off on that steve really appreciate your time thank take you care. very much those oh, that God are listening. Thank, thank you, yeah. Rob, and uh, God bless you for taking the time. Yeah, and those that are listening to the podcast, uh, really appreciate your time. Can you, um, obviously, there's a lot of key takeaways that um, I'm sure everyone that was listening can um, take some lessons from. Um, Steve's obviously got a wealth of experience, and um, there's certainly some things in, in the content that you can uh, that you can learn from. So um, for those that are listening, appreciate if you can share this episode with um, others in the industry um, so they can have the benefit of um, Steve's expertise so until next time happy mining thank you for listening remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review until next time happy mining helping each other to improve the mining industry